if you've got, a, if you'd like to, Hello. I mean, if, you, if there's a general question, great. If it's someone specific on the panel, then by yeah. all means. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm Maurice Murphy. I'm local GP educator, um, non-stipendary minister, um, and I'm a student stonemason down in Bath um, this year. Um, I'm very concerned about, uh, it's a resource question, really, for the new NHS, new, new NHS. Um, I use narrative in the consultation. I find it increases my efficiency. Uh, listening to the story last week, I had two extended consultations, and I think uh, we really were getting somewhere where we hadn't been before. Um, timekeeping is always on my CPD. I'm sure everyone here who's a GP knows about that. But um, understanding the story and taking it into both the diagnosis but also the remedy and helping people to be more positive about their lives is surely one of the things that we should be doing as GPs. I know that there's an issue about expectation. I know that there's a lot of concern about you know, people coming to the GP about all sorts of social issues and is, should it really be there or should it not. But I think that there is some evidence that going into the story um, or explaining something better actually produces better health outcomes. There was a paper quite a few years ago that looked at um, how complications uh, from operations in hospital could be reduced, or at least the perception of them could be reduced by patients having things explained to them better so that they could identify with the problems, they could engage with it, and they could overcome the problems themselves. So the question is, yes. I think, there is evidence that that qualitative stuff counts as much as the quantitative stuff, the number crunching. And is your concern and time and resource? how do we get that argument into the uh, reorganisation? And the resource question, was that and time? And the resource question yep. is partly about time and expense, yep. but also dismissing stuff that doesn't seem to have so much evidence, right. when actually there is some evidence. Right. And objective evidence, not yeah. just subjective evidence. You've written about this, Richard, in terms of the, the need for time. Um, and I think both The Lancer and um, BMJ recently have, have, have talked about, you know, the, the, the sparsity of ward round time, for example, and the importance of that. Um, and how, so how do we cater for m more time against a limited resource? Is it important? Well, I th it is important but the solution doesn't lie with doctors. Um, we have many different health professionals in our health system. And we, the conversation over the last two days has often talked about doctors, but the role of nurses, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, all the allied health workers, they have an incredibly important part to play in broadening our concept of, of interacting with a health system. And the doctor may not be the best person to begin that, or they have a crucial role at some stage in it, but I think it's thinking a little differently about the role of all of the health professions. And I think this is, I would come back to there's a, there's a real crisis in our medical education system because too often our education of health professionals is very siloed. And I think the case and the evidence now for interprofessional training is building and it's stronger and stronger and stronger. And we do have to think differently. And here we need to learn not from ourselves or other rich countries. We need to learn from low-income countries because the solution to the health system crisis in low-income countries is not doctors. It's community health workers, it's nurses. And that's a lesson that we should be thinking about here. Broaden your dimensions of who it is that we think of as the 
point of care person yeah, for, for the patient. Can I just say something? Because the way we're going, we, we're using up more and more resources, not making people healthier or happier. I went to my local hospital after I left the government and, the, you know, they were all on these uh, lights giving, you know, people waiting in A&E. So then they had a ward behind the A&E to put people into. And then they had people, teams of people going around the hospital, getting people out of beds, sitting in chairs so that they could empty the beds to keep all this system going. And then a big piece of research was done. You probably know that most of the people coming into the hospital are elderly, frail, with heart and chest. And if they keep coming in and out because it's not a satisfactory arrangement when they get home, and they're churning through the health service, taking up enormous resources. Well, this isn't a resource shortage. This is a lack of human caring and waiting and thinking and using the resource we've got better and caring for people better. Yes. It's a mechanistic madness. I mean, mecha mechanistic madness, that's brilliant, actually. I'm going to um, use that a lot. <laughs> I, mean, I think it goes back to this whole issue about, about the storm that we're all in in modern society. And, and, and the, the one thing everybody seems to lack in life nowadays is time. Mm. And, and it's not just about healthcare. And if you look at all the research on what makes a truly effective police officer or, or a prison warder or a teacher or a nurse, it's giving your customer a bit of time to talk, to listen, that can often be far more important than the actual, the pill or the time in prison. But it, it's that issue of time. We, we've somehow created a system where we know the price of everything, but, but the value, the value of, nothing. of nothing. But that's because the measures we have are all about productivity. Yeah. So we treat patients as commodities, yeah. and we want to measure the performance of the health system in, in the way that you'd measure the performance of a factory. Yes. And that has reduced us, com completely dehumanized our health system. And Claire's com comment about me the mechanistic madness is, is really important, actually. In fact, it's what prompted Medicine Unboxed as an idea and in, in the recognition that this momentum of intervention, although absolutely necessary at certain points, had become so uh, ex extraordinary, and the expectation of it, both from healthcare professionals and society, was becoming something that was untenably sustainable. Um, really, Chris, right on cue, a medical oncologist. Thank you very much. Uh, Chem Mao came up with a lot of uh, plans, uh, and some of them were very flawed, but there was an ampli amplification factor, because down the chain, all of the people in the car just said, if he wants a five-year plan for so much, I can do better than that. So they amplified the problem. And I think that we're getting the same problem with the NHS. And Richard has just made the statement that collecting information is part of the problem. Uh, and I think that the, the effect of having microcomputers in every clinic, collecting information, having forms to fill in, constantly is driving things. And managers within the NHS are all looking at the people above them, feeling threatened and trying to collect that information, which is very often ignored and spurious. So Richard's comment about the, uh, the chief medical officer saying, don't let's cause a fuss because my job is at risk, goes all the way down the chain and it's amplifying the top edict and it's making it worse. So somehow I would like to ask how are we going to get out of this bind of collecting information which is spurious and harmful. Is it 
Any quick answers to that? Well, I think we've got to keep challenging because social work is drowning in it. They don't have any time to go and see families who need some help because they're filling up all the forms so they can both be accused or denounced or defend themselves. <laughs> well, I'll come, actually, I will come to you in just a moment. Sorry, but sorry. So naming it, describing it or in all our different sectors, bring it out, laugh at it. Gentlemen at the top. Say man. how mad it is, yeah. <laughs> yes, hello, Ian Smith, a GP in the Forest of Dean. Um, I just want to broadly support uh, what Claire, uh, Richard and Colin have been saying in particular. Richard, um, I, I've got a, a little bit of a, a question that's been burning since his first talk. Um, he talked about collectivism and, and society being important, moving away from neoliberalism. I couldn't agree with him more. I think it's called socialism. Um, he also used, but interestingly, he used the term customer when, when, when we just had the discussion now, which again is, is part of the market uh, forces uh, problem. I'd like to, I, I, the question I can ask is, how is he surprised by our lack of engagement in, in politics uh, and with, with our, our disregard of politicians when uh, a million people can march against Iraq and it's ignored, when I think the vast majority of the country is in favor of, uh, health, of the NHS as it was, the 1948 type of values, but no one's, I, I can only believe that because I, I can't ask everybody in this country. Politicians are in the position to actually find out what people think, but they haven't asked that question. All, of, all the main parties are giving us one viewpoint of, of, of market-led uh, uh, NHS. And, and so there is no democracy going on at the moment. We need a, we, democracy's great, but our form of democracy is not working. So, um, Richard, Matthew, comments on that? I mean, I would, I would disagree to some extent. I would say that, that it, it's, democracy is clearly not perfect. It's working to some extent, and it, you might argue that it's working far better than it does in other parts of the world. I mean, one of the great challenges we've got is actually uh, we have a lot of choice in, in this country to some extent in terms of um, the, 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 if you look at the Rotherham by-election that's coming up soon, 11 candidates on that. You go and talk to people about what they want as individuals in the public face to face, and they will tell you, you know, would you pay more money for higher public services? Would you want this, that, and the other? There is a problem, sort of a breakdown, that what the public say when they talk to you in the street and what they do in the ballot box when it comes to voting for people are two very different things. My concern is goes back to this crises causing windows of opportunity in which things really can change. For me, the climate change challenge is the one that's coming up. I just hope it doesn't take a crisis getting there before something happens that we can start to make changes. Richard. I mean, I, I do think there's a crisis in our democracy, and just symbolically, um, the separation between the institutions of our democracy and the people. Um, I go occasionally to meetings in the House of Commons. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to get into the House of Commons. You go past the police, then you go down this little ramp, then you get to the security barrier, and then you have to put a little tag on yourself, then you put your stuff through the machine, then you walk through another machine. And th I mean, you know, the, the separation between the people and our institutions of, of democracy is becoming ever thicker. And that, under the name of security, because the manu and this is where Chomsky is so right, the manufacture of fear by our political leaders to make us frightened, to, to stop us from challenge, that manufacture of fear, the barriers between us and our parliamentary democracy, that is what is destroying our democracy today. And that's the challenge we have to somehow address. But Churchill said it, 
it's the least worst system. It's not wonderful. It's, I mean, party democracy. But remember the Soviet Union happened. I mean, bad ideas can get a grip and take over a society. And, and to some degree, now. that's Those happening bad, to us. No, are. I mean, that's, that's right. So, that's right. The, you know, it, it isn't just the mechanics of the political system because they've taken a hold on all, all thinking and we've got to change the ideas and challenge it. And I think that will come as it breaks down and can't afford to go on with the system we've got. Like, we, the size of our prison population is much higher than it. It's very okay. expensive and we've very destructive. We've got lots of hands up, so I'm going to move on. Just, at the, just here. Thank you. Hello, I'm, I'm Karen LeBall. I'm a geriatrician and I work at South London Healthcare Trust, which has actually been in the news quite a lot lately due to the fact that the trust special administrator is in there sort of trying to work out how the health economy can be rearranged, if to put it in a better term. Now, my question is, um, first of all, is it about time, which is slightly to echo on what the previous person asked, is that I went to a, a meeting only a fortnight ago on compassion. Now, you could ask, what on earth are we doing having meetings about compassion, which is a very scary thought, yeah. but actually the outcome of that meeting was that in order to give compassion to patients, we need, must have more time. And that was what would the outcome was. And the second thing is, is that... Is there any mileage in thinking about a more cooperative way to, uh, to manage health and social care in the more cooperative model? I mean, you know, one John Lewis springs to mind, but is there any way that we could look up upon our health economy where I have to go next week to defend my position of wanting an extra five minutes per patient in my outpatient clinic to the medical director and chief operating officer? Is there another way that we can look at doing things in a completely different way? Absolutely here. What is the other way then? Well, I think this is where we have to think about other health professionals um, and how we broaden the inclusion of those health professionals to, to essentially give us that time. And I think we have a very, we have, in fact, the whole system is so totally stupid because we have, you know, whoever invented these terms of primary, secondary and tertiary care and these different professions, I mean this was a model that worked God knows when, but it's not a model that I think is right today I mean we need to be working in teams that tear down these barriers With which some of the barrier created. there though, I mean it, there seems to, if we're talking about justice, is there a just um, hierarchy of remuneration across doctors through nurses, psychologists there isn't, is there? So that so invoking other healthcare professionals to take on uh, more responsibility when in fact they're deprioritized as a resource or in terms of payment is a challenge, isn't it? And some of that's our society, uh, differentially valuing doctors and nurses, for example. I mean, and, and you know, I, you're absolutely right in saying many of the conversations we've been having here in the last two days have been about doctors, but that's largely because I despair of them so yeah. much more than I do of nurses' input or assessments of holistic patient care. Um, so how do we get to a point where we reevaluate how we pay, how we prioritise, for example, nursing input? Well, that's why, I must say why, and sorry if I'm going to be offensive now, but that's why I loathe the British Medical Association so much, because the BMA does a fantastic job of arguing for doctors, but isn't terribly interested about arguing for other health professions. And, and in that particular case, they, the profession of medicine has often done more harm to the health system because it's had this very narrow self-interest and has not looked more broadly at the, at, the, at the needs 
and demands of our society yes. and hasn't represented those in any way adequately. Yes. Yeah. I think it, is it Emma at the top? Yeah. Hiya, um, I'm Emma Collins, I'm a junior doctor. Um, the point that you made about um, the gap between public expectations and the perception gap um, between resources and what patients feel that they are owed is something that I come across every day. I just wondered what you felt the role of the media, and in particular medical media, would be to um, somehow address that gap and how so we go about that. We are going to come on to this a bit on communication, but I just wondered, Richard Horton, whether you could give us a, just a brief vignette of MMR. Well, the lesson there is don't get mixed up with crazy people. Um, the, oh, I don't think it can be done briefly, you know, Sam. Um, but, I mean, I think the, the issue around MMR was the perfect storm of many different issues and can't easily be reduced to blaming the Daily Mail. Um, it's, it's a much more complex set of, set of issues that has to do with listening to the stories of patients, actually, and parents, um, understanding uh, a neglected issue in our society, autism, um, the evidence base around vaccines, um, a whole set of issues which are actually quite complex. And I think that's maybe the one lesson about communication mm. is it's not simple. And that you've written about this in terms of not regretting um, publishing the paper, but in fact not necessarily being preemptive at recognizing how it might be magnified and distorted not thinking, by the media. Yeah, not yeah, yeah, thinking sure. about the complexity yes. of the system and the lesson of that is to think much more in a much more nuanced way about how these different forces work. Yes, we and we will come on to that more in communication, but do, did you... Let yeah. me just jump to follow on from that. I think, I think there is a, a real issue here with the media. That for, 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 for most members of the public, they get their information about healthcare, education or whatever through, through various forms of the media. But we're in a rather strange time that in, in a sense we have more media space online or, or traditional than we've ever had before. But I would say that the quality of our media has declined. More sensationalist, more sleaze-based, you know, the, the belief that only bad news sells. And I think it's a real issue for, 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 for doctors, clinicians, for researchers, that in a sense they have to be very careful that their a, a, a statement said at a, a, an off-the-record comment or a piece of research isn't suddenly inflamed and becomes part of a media feeding frenzy because we simply don't have a media that allows us at the moment to negotiate balanced, sensible conversations about the options we have or where we might go in the future. Okay, hundreds of hands. Graham. Uh, Gabriel Scali. Gabriel, sorry. Public health Apologies. position. Yes. Uh, three quick points. One, um, in... Uh, a general tone of pessimism I, I hear. Uh, can I just stand up for Obama? Uh, because Matthew didn't do him justice at mm. all. I think Obamacare and the Affordable Health Care Act has lifted a, a blight out of um, the lives of millions of people in the US. It's a major step forward. Not everything, but given the Senate he was facing, a major, major step forward, and I, I, I won't have that rubbished. Uh, <laughs> secondly, uh, uh, Richard said that uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the medical enlightenment in the, in the uh, sanitary revolution based on medical science. It wasn't, Richard, you know, uh, Farr, Chadwick, Lord Morpeth. Uh, doctors w were on the wrong track at that stage even because most of the early changes in the sanitary revolution were based on the miasma theory. Uh, the bacterial, uh, bacteriological model of the cause of illness came later than that. What it was was such a broad social movement 
uh, involving everyone in society. And if any you know, professional group deserve credit for the Santry Revolution, it's the engineers, the civic engineers. Absolutely fantastic. And I think that's uh, a lesson for us in the way forward. Um, and the th uh, you're, sorry, I'm not picking you, Richard, but the, uh, the other point about the medical profession having let us down over the bill. Well, I, I, you know, I was very deeply involved in some of that. And the two things that struck me was uh, one old thought was the corrupting influence of the honours system at the top end of the medical profession. Uh, because I've seen far too many people holding distinguished posts in the profession who are really only interested in their knighthood. And uh, secondly, is the undemocratic nature of many of our medical organizations. Uh, I was absolutely astounded as one had to look through the bylaws of various colleges and so on, at how antediluvian they are. They're still based uh, it's centuries ago uh, on, the, uh, on the way of doing things of centuries ago. And if we are going to move forward in democracy, we need to do it in the profession first. I might, we, I'm might. i sure we'll come back on this, Gabriel, but you, Gabriel, in saying there's a bit of pessimism in, I guess it's more realism, isn't it, in that arguably, you know, you've, you've recontextualized how you feel you can impact on the system. We might get you to comment on that a bit in your panel session. Mrs. Tallis? Oh, do, can you speak from there, do you Sorry. think, without it? social worker in child protection and adoption. However, I've always been fairly political, and when I retired, I thought I would be able to be active, as in John Grimley Evans' memorable phrase, that I could be one of the grey guardians of all our futures. I would just like to know, I've spoken to my GP, he says, I'm not interested, I've got a mortgage. I've spoken to my MP, he's not interested, despite or perhaps because of spending hours with me, he's just, you know, denying everything, it's going to be wonderful. We saw what happened to the Occupy movement when we had the march about 18 months ago. I would just like to ask, very politely, Claire and Matthew and Colin, as I walk out of here today, what should I do? How can I act effectively? Thanks, Claire Short. You should write and speak and challenge and get together with people like this and... and because just lobbying on the top of the system where it's all built on the wrong assumptions can't get it fixed. But all of you in a louder and louder voice, writing intelligently, commenting, picking it apart, that will change it. Do you understand my answer? I mean my answer because then when we get that way of informed opinion that really is laughing at these silly systems, we'll have some power to change. Quick show of hands as to who believes that will work. Okay, good, that's optimistic. Oh, so we've got someone at the top there in the green cardigan. Hello, I'm Helen Miller. I'm a GP in Gloucester City, and I perhaps am what would be named a relentless optimist. I'm one of the GPs, uh, and Matthew Flinders said about people getting up and being counted, who feels that uh, the clinicians, not just GPs, should be leading forward about patient care. In Gloucestershire, we're ahead of the game. We've got some fabulous projects around the county, living well particularly in the south of the county, who um, are looking at the patient in the middle, working with social workers, healthcare professionals, physios, OTs, for what's best for patients. 
We're working very closely with our county council who realise they haven't got enough money and we have, are in a better position. We have a health and wellbeing board now which is working, starting to come out to people, saying actually housing and employment is the biggest determinant of health and wellbeing in this county. My problem and my question to Matthew is, we as a county are working collaboratively, but we have MPs in the county who are all fighting their courses for their own determinants. A mile up the road here, we have a population that is in one of the most deprived areas in the whole country. You know, from this beautiful, glorious Cheltenham, we have deprivation. And those people will live 10 years less than the people in Morton in the Marsh and Cheltenham. And it's about those inequalities of working with our MPs who actually can be quite destructive when they're, obviously because they're wanting to fight and get the people population. But we have to have this social ownership for the whole county, for the whole people, about the people that don't have a voice. And how can MPs help and support us when we're doing a very difficult job? Claire, did you want to pick that up particularly, or Matthew? I mean, it sounds, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased to have a relentless optimist up there and the work you're doing sounds fantastic in terms of bringing together all the different organisations and putting the patient back at the centre. All I would say in relation to the, the role of an MP is I think that, that MPs do, one of the great problems with being an MP, and, and Claire hopefully will back this up, is that actually the demands on you are coming from so many angles all at the time, it's really in, incredibly hard to know which one to pick up and run with. And what you need to do is to somehow put your issue at the top of your local MPs. And there are ways that you can do that, and, and we can talk afterwards, but I would say that most MPs are pretty normal people, just like me, you, they're under pressure, they've got frailties, they can't deliver to everybody, they can't give all things to all people, but if you approach them with a constructive, with an issue and a constructive solution, building upon what you seem to be doing that's working, generally I'd surprise if they didn't show more interest in it. But we can talk after. Colin, oh sorry, sorry uh, Colin. It seems to me we live in a time of politics when you've got to have two-level two tactics. I mean, to get specific things done, you have to deal with this rotten system that we have, which has become North Americanized. Uh, it means that you have to figure out how to provide a sufficient inducement and or threat to particular people in particular positions at great particular moments to do a particular thing. It's a very limited kind of politics. At the same time, I totally agree with uh, Terry, that we've each got to change our habits of a half century. I remember um, the former general secretary of uh, GMW Union uh, uh, writing in a magazine that when he joined the union, he found in the branch there were 32 members and they met once a month and there were 30 people there with letters of apology from two. Now, I've attended a few union meetings, not that long ago, and they're very lucky to get in a whole region 20 people. Um, we've got to decide that if we want the world to be different, we're going to devote a chunk of our lives to it. And we've got to persuade our friends and neighbors that it's no good complaining about this system. They've got to mobilize around whatever unit of organization makes sense to them. And, and everybody's got a different one. I'm involved at the moment with a group of people trying to set up a think tank which would deal, attack, uh, policy-based evidence. <coughs> um, and uh, <coughs> I think that we've lacked that for the last 10 years. Uh, if that comes off, you'll read about it, and I hope you'd uh, support it and help it and write for it. Uh, many of the people here could. But that's my particular thing, and I don't believe that it's hugely important, but I don't think we'll know which are the critical units 
until we've been doing this for another few years, and that's what we've all got to do. I just want to say um, most MPs are not the answer. They're trapped in a system, so you go to them for very specific things. But if you want big shifts, you're not going to get it there. You've got to... I mean, the Tory party completely opposed the post-war settlement, and then it was popular and successful, and they embraced it and ran it. You know, now there are times when tides of ideas shift. The, kind, the, the political system is trapping, just like the, the mad bureaucracy traps you. Most politicians are trapped in it and thinking if they keep their nose clean, there'll be a PPS and then there'll be a, you know, and there's no room for any thinking. So use them for very specific things, but don't expect to engage them in big ideas. So the metaphor, so the, <laughs> the, the parallel of the doctor's surgery and the MP's surgery is sort of getting tighter, isn't it, there? Um, Richard, did you have a comment on that? Just very, quick, just very quickly, I think that there, to take an example from India, um, this feeling of universal disenfranchisement from, from, the, from po politics. Um, so what civil society did, created a people's health movement. What did the people's health movement do? Created tribunals, people's health tribunals. And what that was was civil society, you and I coming together in a building like this, um, to look at the community and to say, what are the problems? You invite the media in. You invite local politicians in. But you take control of the political process. Not you going to your MP surgery saying, what about this? You create your own space. You create your own demand in the community. You lay out the problems of your community. And then, and you do, imagine if you started a People's Health Tribunal here in Cheltenham for your area. And you met every month. And you came here and you documented yourselves precisely. And it does take time. Time, but you document yourselves precisely what's going on in your community and you get it on the front page of your newspaper and you write to your newspapers and you go down to Parliament and present the evidence to your MP and eventually he or she will have to respond. You take control of the system. It was done in Maharashtra in India. It can be done in Cheltenham. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. The Maharashtrans are a pretty impressive bunch. Um, the, the music's about to stop, and two people are left holding microphones, and so I'm going to go okay, with you Okay, um, I, I think I'm the only non-doctor here. <laughs> oh. Well, Another I'm, I'm false I'm getting belief. a bit tired because it's it's hierarchical concept here. I'm a physiotherapist, and... I've come through the, the old system, trained, you know, donkeys years ago. And we're dealing with this problem the, of the hierarchical concept, aren't we? I'm also very proud to have been a person that's lived in um, a developing country for 30 years. And we built things with healthcare from the bottom up, Richard. We got the Swaziland. We got the people together. We discovered what the problem was. We had absolutely no money, hmm. none. And slowly, we filtrated ideas through into society. It was actually for the disabled who were rejected people. They were, they were shunned. And slowly, we changed the paradigm. It was amazing. I think the problem is that in the UK, you're stuck. The revolution would start if you started to pay your carers who look, for the, um, look after your elderly relatives a lot of money and empower them to feel fantastically valued. And w just, just to come on, so it would be payment that would make them feel valued, would it? 
All right. well, they paid very badly. That's the message. In Thanks, Sam. Yep. I appreciate your generosity in letting the microphone come in my direction again. Uh, uh, Mark Waters, I'm a GP from about an hour away. Uh, I wanted to address the question of how the medical profession can offer some leadership here, uh, and how, and, and, but also to address the failure of, of protest, really. Uh, I mean, I've attended so many marches and written so many letters to uh, the House of Lords and to my MP and to the newspapers, and the health bill still got enacted. And, and I've just I've been wondering, what else can we do? And in the public sector, withdrawing our labour is problematic, as Colin said, and, and will always be so. Uh, and I just wanted to float an idea. That's the reason I wanted the microphone, really. And, I wonder, and this is something I've been wondering about, and I'd be interested to know a response from around the room, really, about the idea of doctors, again, just addressing this disparity of remuneration. We have more available to, to give, really. Providing additional days of work for free. Uh, we could call them NHS Sundays. Uh, and, and, and make ourselves available to patients, see them, and don't expect any reward for that. Do that once a month and build up some kind of momentum of how important this thing is that we're in danger of losing by giving something from ourselves. And, not, and, I can, and I would hope that if we did something of that kind, that nobody could undermine that and say, well, this was self-interest. This would all just be about the NHS. We picked the wrong issue and the wrong method of protest in, over pensions. And I just wonder what people thought. Show of hands for that as an act of imaginative protest. There you go. Right, we'll not see you all many. next Sunday. Um, I'm going to close this session off now. Um, I think the message from it is, in response to the gentleman at the top, a different kind of democracy, act. It is our duty to act. So let's um, get on with it. We'll see you in half an hour. There's communication. Thank you.